And uh, we welcome Dr. Shah back this week, and uh, it's real doctor surgery. Anything you'd like to ask, medical topic, uh, you can give us a call uh, or send us in your questions. Uh, and uh, already they're coming through thick and fast. Dr. Shah, great to have you back with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, it's uh, great to chat again. Good stuff. Let's uh, let's crack on because these messages are, c- are coming in, as I say, thick and fast. Uh, now, here's a question that I, I would also agree with here. Uh, and uh, Anonymous says that I had a flu jab and a booster shot about them about a month ago. This week, I have the flu. Why? Ha, I love a, a, a committed flu vaccine <laughs> atheist. It's a good, a good uh, medical religious topic to, to sort of break the ice with them. <laughs> So I suppose the quick answer to the the listener's query is you don't have flu per se. Um, You're probably just having a a bit of a seroconversion reaction to the vaccine. Flu vaccines don't cause flu. Let's let's start with that. So the vaccine uh, is designed to trigger a reaction in your immune system, and it gives you very specific protection against the three commonest flu strains from the last season. So the, the science of flu vaccines is quite crafty these days. They, they map it out very cleverly around the world, southern hemisphere, northern hemisphere. And so the vaccine that you've had, great tick, number one, you've had the vaccine, perfect. And it's given you good protection against those three common strains from the previous year, which at this point include H1N1 uh, and a bunch of others. Um, and yes, you may get a little bit of a of a viral reaction. So you may get some symptoms which uh, are not debilitating at all, but certainly you haven't gotten flu from the vaccine. There we go. That's your answer. That, that, that I love that message. It was very much j'accuse, j'accuse the flu jab. Oh, no, it's a, and they get such a bad rap, and and, and you, you sort of you get it, you know, because the the press may be around, or the, the common conversation, the the, the, the tea party or brafles conversation around vaccines sometimes does give them a bit of a bad rap. But the science is so good that one really, really, uh, you know, you take it as a given. Uh, they, they're affording your immune system just great protection that you can't get from just wandering around and being in the community so certainly tick the box of taking the vaccines that your healthcare provider recommends. Yeah absolutely Uh, All right. uh, the next question I've been suffering headaches and the pain and pressure is mostly on the top of my head Uh, I also feel very sweaty at night even during winter. Uh, What should I do it's been like this since nearly last year since says uh, Albert in Woodstock Yeah tricky one to sort of unpack without more symptoms really. Uh, Yeah headache is is a fairly non-specific uh, sort of orange flag, if you like, not a red flag unless it's serious stuff connected to high blood pressure and other things. So uh, the, the sweaty um, sensation at night, uh, we don't have a, an age and an underlying profile of the, of the questioner, um, but that's uh, you know, a good clue to maybe just start with a, a 20,000 kilometre service. You know, a general practitioner needs to just evaluate this person, uh, you know, do a proper set of blood, see where you are in terms of general health, what your blood pressure is like, what your cholesterol is looking like. And then in terms of night and sleep hygiene, maybe there's a hormone factor involved here. Uh, there are a number of things that can trigger sort of poor sleep hygiene, and it might ultimately be as simple as just stabilizing a diet, stabilizing sugar levels, for example. A number of things could give that symptom complex. So 
I think a, a visit to the general practitioner for a, a good thorough checkup is, is the right place to start. Okay, good stuff. There you go, Albert. Hope that's helped you out a little bit. The time is 16 minutes past 11. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Charles van Lockenberg doing a Monday night doctor's surgery. Uh, any medical questions or queries that you would like uh, some answers to or certainly to be pointed in the right direction, uh, then uh, do get in touch with us on 021-446-0567. You can SMS 31567 or WhatsApp 072 567 All right, uh, Enver in Lansdowne says, uh, is there a link between long-term methadone use and protein deficiency? Uh, my doctor says I'm losing protein through my urine. I was on methadone on and off for a number of years. I'm also struggling to put on weight. Mm, tricky one and uh, uh, some connections for sure um, I'm not so sure about the protein loss so you know the, the, the long term use of the methadones has got a num- an impact on a number of organ systems uh, from the liver perspective kidney perspective a number of the organ systems that are part of our filtration system and part of the, the physiological uh, processing plant that you've got that helps to regulate your blood and regulate the, the various metabolites and electrolytes that sit in your system. So the answer from my perspective is a, is a kind of a general yes, um, but certainly to start with a very thorough uh, organ check, if you like. So this, this involves, uh, again, a visit to the GP uh, and proper evaluation of the different organ systems that may have taken uh, a bit of a hammering over long-term use of medications like the, the, the heavy painkillers and heavy narcotics because they do have a, a, a sort of a chronic system side effect to them. So the answer is a yes, but certainly not uh, insurmountable. And let's make sure we get that basic organ system function checked first. Yeah, absolutely. What I mean, is it when when somebody's on methadone? Is that a long term? Um, presumably, that's not that's not it's not advisable to be on methadone or or a, or um, a heroin substitute for for an extended period of time. Not at all, and and you're 100 percent right. So the, the drug itself belongs to that opioid or narcotic class of analgesics, and its role in medicine has traditionally been to treat the addiction to heroin originally that's the sort of the first box that it ticks uh, and the idea is that methadone as a as a strong narcotic in itself but slightly different chemically speaking to heroin the idea is that it can pick the receptor box and give the, the patient or the person the, the sensation that their body needs at the time for the use of the drug but it doesn't have all of the downsides of, uh, of heroin use the, the trick though is that you're you're still balancing a fairly dangerous drug exposure with another drug that's quite powerful. So, you know, methadone use is not uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is something that still has to be controlled and regulated and prescribed by the doctor to just make sure that it is actually providing the the help and the the exit pathway, if we can call it that, for the person themselves. So there is still a a journey that they have to follow. It's not a, a one swap for something dangerous, for a swap for something mm. healthy and we're good to go and, and life carries on. We still need to follow a pathway of getting the body free of using or needing uh, the, that narcotic buzz on those receptors. Is it possible to overdose on, on methadone? Sure, absolutely. In the same way that one can overdose from any strong narcotic. So absolutely, it's not a, um, a benign substance in itself. It does 
absolutely need careful dose regulation and, and monitoring and understanding of what it's working. But uh, as a potential for overdose, uh, certainly the drug is a, is a powerful one in itself. Mm, mm. All right, uh, let's go to um, Adam in Mitchell's plane who asks that I was diagnosed with an enlarged prostate and using a catheter now. I'm due to go f- to I'm due to go for a procedure to scrape the prostate and make it smaller. Will I have to use the catheter uh, for the rest of my life? The acronym for the procedure is TURP, T-U-R-P. How risky is it? Yeah, so it's, uh, the, the, the short answer is it's a very common procedure, very uh, frequently done by urologi- urologists, so urological surgeons. And the procedure is literally what the name describes. So it's a, a, a procedure that's done via the urethra, so via a surgically inserted catheter. And the idea is to take away prostate tissue that's actually mechanically compressing the plumbing. So the plumbing, the outflow of urine is not working well because of that mechanical constriction of the prostate gland which sits around that part of the male anatomy. And the logic behind the surgery is purely mechanical. So this is not a a cancer removal process. It's not a disease modifying process. It's it's mechanical. It's engineering. And uh, it it can have very positive results. And so certainly if uh, this particular listener has gotten to the point where a urologist is recommending a TERP, um, if they're doing them frequently, it's a a well-described procedure. They can go into it with some degree of confidence uh, and uh, with a bit of luck get good relief from the symptoms that have, have driven them to that point. And then at the same time, there's a, a bit of a parallel medical process to just make sure that that prostatic enlargement, whatever is driving the organ's size change, is benign and uh, it is maybe just age-related because it is a very common age-related problem in men um, and it's something that needs to be monitored and just to check that the, the, the whole um, the development of the prostate enlargement is uh, not indicating a cancer or not indicating anything else more sinister and the urologist will be able to check for that. So by, by all means, go ahead. Okay, there we go, Adam. Hope that's uh, helped you out. Thanks so much for your message. Uh, Hazel's message in uh, from Grassy Park and says, Good evening. Uh, please could you advise me? I have swollen ankles. Uh, I have high blood pressure and do take RIDAC every morning. Well, now... Uh, that's kind of the, the physicians, uh, you know, the, the, the Sherlock Holmes already has to get involved. So the swollen ankles could be a function of lots of things. What, what it's really talking to is a, a gravity or posture-dependent collection of fluid uh, that's driven by the body's uh, inability to completely process it and completely recirculate it. So what, what's happening here is as a function of just general cardiovascular health, uh, partly related to this high blood pressure because high blood pressure is a, an excessive strain on the cardiovascular system. What's happening is uh, the, the, the fluid, the water of blood, if you like, is not being completely resorbed and completely processed in circulation back into the plumbing for, uh, for good circulation afterwards. So what needs to happen here is, is the medication that she's on, and it may require a little bit more. It may require uh, one or two extra medications from her healthcare provider just to make sure that her uh, kidneys are properly flushing out her fluids and to make sure that her 
cardiovascular in particular heart is uh, functioning nicely and is not uh, under excessive strain or duress because uh, sometimes the swollen ankles can just be a, an indicator. It's just a flag that the high blood pressure hasn't been effectively controlled yet. Uh, Maybe just some mechanical support might be required. It might be a, a function of something as simple as the, you know, elasticated stockings and, and socks at work and feet up when you come home kind of thing. That will certainly help, uh, but it's making sure that the medications are correct to just uh, get the fluid properly processed. Okay, good stuff. Uh, Amy asks, this is an interesting question. Uh, hi, is there a correlation between the age of the onset of puberty and the age of menopause? Oh, outside of my expertise, I, I, I'm leaning towards wanting to say yes, but I can't really give you a good answer why. So, you know, the, my, my um, very skilled uh, surgical wife would probably answer the question a hundred times better. Um, the, the age re- relation or the correlation, if you like, between the hormonal arrival of adulthood and the hormonal change from uh, um, reproductive adulthood to post-reproductive adulthood, which is the menopause, there certainly is a link between the two. The the two are partly uh, a function of modern diets and modern hormones, and we're certainly seeing quite a bit of that today. But the problem is, is that it's, it's not a simple picture to answer because our, our medical health is so complicated these days by all of the various substances that we are taking that do tend to push out the, the natural physiological ages of hormonal change that one can't really just say in a, in a binary way, black and white, yes, the one's connected to the other, but they certainly are related, yes. There we go. <laughs> interesting. That was quite strange, but, but interesting. Uh, is there a genetic factor to strokes? Um, my mum recently suffered a stroke, says uh, Karen in Elsie's River. Yeah, so it, it does run in, in the family in the sense that the, the organ system or the, the structures that, take the, that uh, present with the symptoms of stroke is the cardiovascular system. So in the same way as heart disease and coronary disease, uh, there is a familial link around a predisposition to having a heart attack if you've had cardiovascular disease in the family. The same logic would apply to apply to stroke because stroke is essentially a brain attack, if you like, a heart attack of the same vessels just in the brain, so different organ system. So yes, the connection is there. Uh, probably more importantly is because you can't really fix your genetics, you've got the blueprint that you've got, what one needs to be aware of is fine, I've got these risk factors as uh, the family box being picked, so that's a negative, but I can control a whole bunch of other risk factors which are equally important in the risk profile for stroke. So this is where the the diet and the exercise and the smoking and the controlling of underlying metabolic diseases like the diabetes and others, all of those contribute as strongly to controlling the ultimate risk of stroke. So it's really a, in a weird sort of way, a, a useful flag, you know, to say, I identify this positive family history. I'm now alerted to the fact that I've got to take some extra special precautions uh, and make sure that I've got sort of 200% control of my cardiovascular health so that uh, whatever I'm doing in my day-to-day, whether it's my, my, uh, my jog around the block, my walk in the morning, my modification of my diet, my controlling of my bad habits, all of those things are slowly bringing down my stroke risk and uh, taking me a step away from what my genetic profile might mm. be uh, mm. leaning me towards. Yep, yep.
Okay, there we go, Karen. Hope that's uh, helped you out. Uh, we've had a message in from Dawn who says that I never ever suffered from high blood pressure, uh, but three weeks ago I was prescri- prescribed a tablet as it was 160 over 86. It was also very swollen all round. Is it age related or could it be due to very hot weather? I'm 72, says Dawn. And she says that she was prescribed uh, Ostal Enalapril. Right, so she was prescribed a, a very common, very standard uh, drug to help reduce blood pressure. So point one, that, that sounds like a step in the right direction. Um, answer number one is it definitely is age-related. So blood pressure control is just one of those things that older bodies don't do as well as younger bodies. So as one gets older, one's ability to effectively regulate blood pressure does decline slightly, and one just has to be aware of that. The, the, the real cause of high our blood pressure through our lives is actually one of those medical mystery questions, believe it or not. You know, we think it's so essential to medicine, but the, the commonest cause of high blood pressure is actually called essential hypertension, which is medical gobbledygook for, we haven't defended that there what caused it, but we'll treat it for you anyway. Mm. Um, and that, that is really the, the, the true story behind high blood pressure. You know, we can identify risk factors again. So we can say, look, your, your sedentary lifestyle, the fact that you're a bit overweight, the fact that you smoke, those things we know will contribute to high blood pressure. Um, but at the end of the day, the fact that one person who has the same risk factors lifestyle-wise has high blood pressure and the next person doesn't tells us that we don't yet fully understand the entire picture. Uh, so, you know, uh, at 72 years young, our, our listener is is describing just an age-related deterioration. Thankfully, the, the medicines do work really well. So the fact that it's been picked up, uh, she's had a high blood pressure. She, she didn't indicate that she's been hypertensive throughout her life. So this is a relatively late onset, uh, which is great. So her, uh, her cardiovascular system hasn't taken, we hope, too much punishment over the last couple of decades. And uh, as a result, with uh, some sensible medication, the doctor can just bring those numbers down a little bit um, and uh, you know, she can be symptom-free for, for a good many years after this. There we go. Hope that's helped you out, Dawn. Thanks ever so much. And yes, 72 years young, I should have said that. Dr. Shaw, we've run out of time, but uh, thanks so much for answering all of uh, the questions that have come uh, in thick and fast uh, for you. Uh, And uh, yeah, great to have you on. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Such a pleasure to chat again. Cheerio.